Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from Benjamin Riach. Ben is pastor of Three Rivers Grace Church in Pittsburgh's West End neighborhood. Eddie Jones and I sat down with Ben to talk about his book, Women, Slaves, and the Gender Debate. We talk about biblical slavery, men and women's roles in the home and in the church, as well as how we can do faithful biblical interpretation. I trust you'll be encouraged. So we are here with Ben Riach, and um, we are talking about women, slaves, and the gender debate. Ben, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thank you. Good to be with you guys. So question number one is, um, why... Why this as your doctoral dissertation turned mm. into a book? Like why women, slaves, and the gender debate? Those are, these are hot topics in 2019, and you wrote this back in 2012? Yeah, it was published in 2012. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure you didn't foresee these being as flashpoint as they are now, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, not not entirely, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I was working on my PhD there at Southern Seminary, and... Um, you know, you start with some coursework and then you have to get toward a dissertation topic and choosing a dissertation topic can be kind of tricky. You know, you need to find something that you're interested in and also something that hasn't really been, uh, written on specifically Mm -hmm. by anyone else. Um, you know, or at least find a topic that's going to kind of push the conversation forward, Mm -hmm. the, the academic and, and scholarly, uh, conversation. So, um, yeah, some of my friends were doing things on Paul and the law and, you know, the, the new perspective on Paul. There's a lot of interest around that and, and dissertation topics around that. And um, But uh, my wife, Stacy and me, you know, we had had a lot of conversations about uh, biblical manhood and womanhood and complementarianism and, and learned, uh, you know, learned things uh, individually and, and together as we studied that together. So that was a pretty consistent discussion point between Stacy and me early in our marriage. And we were at Southern Seminary. I was taking seminary classes. Stacy was taking Seminary Wives Institute mm-hmm. classes, which were really helpful. And um, so she was hearing from, from Mary Moeller, you know, as well as uh, some of the professors, Bruce Ware and Al Moeller. And, and so, so a lot of these things were on her mind. So I think it was her, I think she was the one who said, well, you know, why don't you pursue a dissertation topic along these lines, something mm-hmm. about um, the gender debate. And so uh, I thought that that's a good idea, you know. And so <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I I proposed a um, uh, an independent study uh, where I just I just read a whole bunch of the books mm-hmm. on both sides, mm-hmm. egalitarian mm-hmm. books and complementarian books, and and just tried to get my mind around you know where is the debate at. And uh, that's when I came across William Webb's book, uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, and this redemptive movement hermeneutic, and, and kind of saw that as one of the newer egalitarian arguments and thought, well, this, this is something that, that could, uh, could be responded to in, in a more comprehensive way. And uh, so I, I suggested that as a, a dissertation topic. Tom Schreiner was my advisor, and so he and I talked through it some and kind of honed honed in on this on this topic. Yeah. For those who don't know, because I'm sure there's a lot, 
What is the redemptive hermeneutic? What is that? Yeah, yeah. William Webb, what he did in his book, Women, Slaves, and Homosexuals, he he took those three topics and basically compared what the Bible says about each of those topics and compared that and contrasted that with the cultural contexts in which the Bible was written. So the ancient Near Eastern background and the Greco-Roman background. And, you know, and, and I appreciate his his intent and, and his passion kind of in an apologetic way to try to uh, defend the Bible and, and some of these, you know, kind of offensive things that, that people come across in the Bible. Skeptics come across sure. and say, what is that yeah, in the yeah. Bible? And, <laughs> and he's wanting to come and say, um, yeah, some of that is offensive. You see some things about slavery in the Bible. You see these things. And that comes across as, as offensive. But if you compare that to the other cultures around in that in those time periods, they were far more harsh, you know, far, far more offensive to our sensibilities. And so he he kind of traces out this redemptive movement where, you know, the culture in which these things were written um, you know, it, by comparing, you see that there's movement um, uh, toward toward more more uh, equality, more kindness, and and um, and uh, a, a more of a respect for human dignity and things like that. But what what he does that I where I take issue is that he says, you know, we we see the beginning of that movement in what the Bible says. But we need to follow that trajectory mm-hmm. to move even beyond what the Bible says to an ultimate ethic, you know. So that's where on the, um, the, the uh, in terms of the egalitarian position, um, which which says that you know, men and women, um, there are uh, uh, basically the roles are interchangeable mm-hmm. between men and women in the home and in the church. And so you, you come to passages like 1 Timothy 2 and, and Ephesians 5. And, and so he, he would use this hermeneutic to say what we have in the Bible is kind of a, a step in the right direction. But we need to follow that trajectory toward full liberation, full equality, full interchangeability of roles between men and women. So that's how it works in terms of his egalitarian position. Um, and, and, and a lot of it's built on his comparison with the slavery issue in the Bible. So that's, that's where those two issues come together. But he's also trying to differentiate that from the, um, from the passages that address homosexual behavior and, and wanting to maintain that those commands are uh, transcultural, those commands are abiding. Um, and, and so... He's kind of walking a delicate uh, path there because he wants to um, affirm an egalitarian position but still hold to, you know, homosexual behavior is still sinful and wrong. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and without a biblical authority as, okay, here's the line in the sand, then we get to draw the line. Yeah. Right? Like, who's to say in 10 years— when the homosexual agenda has gone even further, further than it is now, right. that then we won't be redemptively going further, just to use the language. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's one of the key critiques of his hermeneutic, is that it becomes more subjective, and it's, uh, I think it really undermines <clears throat> the authority of Scripture, because then, um, and, and his, his book is, 
it, it becomes somewhat complicated. There's all these criterion by which we need to determine is this specific command transcultural or is it just uh, applying to that original culture mm. and then we apply it in a different way. You know, the, the more you, you kind of separate it that way, it's, um, yeah, it becomes more subjective. It also impacts the, um, you know, the, the perspicuity of, of Scripture, the clarity clear, of Scripture. Yeah, yeah that, um, you know, we, we don't need, you know, some guy with 18 criterion in his book of kind of this hermeneutical calculus to figure out if this specific command applies to me or not or how. Mm-hmm. You know, every believer... You know, sure, there are complicated things in the Bible, but every believer can read God's word, and and, right. and by the Spirit, we can apply these things to our lives. And um, so, so yeah, I think we need to affirm the 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 complete authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Um, you know, it, it's accessible to us, and, and there are. So I think he overcomplicates it um, in order to get where where he wants to go mm-hmm. in terms of affirming an egalitarian mm-hmm. view of, of the roles of men and women. Hmm. Let's switch gears real quick. Um, for our church in particular, we have a very multicultural, multi-ethnic church. And we have made, Eddie and I, as the elders of the church, one of our core commitments is to unify people. And so our goal is to take what could be a divisive issue, throw it out into the open, and try to look at it biblically, but also in a unifying way. Um, and so we've had to navigate the racial tension and we, we've together did a a sermon on race and tried to say that there's one race, there's the human race and the Bible knows about ethnicities, you know, go into all the world, make disciples of all ethnicities, not races because there's one race. And so we've tried to build on the biblical foundation saying that, you know, racism is a human made construct. And uh, it's more divisive than it is helpful. And what's more unifying is the biblical worldview that there's one race, but different ethnicities. We come from different countries of origin, but all finding our way back to, you know, Noah's sons. And then before Mm -hmm. that, Adam and Eve in particular. Um, And so we've gone through Philemon and we've gone through some tough passages in Colossians. And we're coming up on Ephesians 6, which is a rough passage for slavery. And since you've written on this, we would love to hear your perspective. And I'm going to let let Eddie ask some questions after I ask this last question for a moment. Um, The big difference between New Testament slavery and Old Testament slavery with the Hebrews Mm -hmm. and American kidnapping, Mm race-based, you know, for life slavery. Could you give us a a good, like, why it's different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's important, too understand because the, the question we, we read these passages and we think why why didn't the biblical writers directly address this evil institution of slavery why didn't they try to snuff it out why didn't they come against slavery and and uh, you know just speak clearly against you know this should be abolished mm-hmm. that troubles us because we see these commands uh, to slaves and instructions about slavery and and to some, it comes across as, well, the Bible is pro-slavery. The Bible mm-hmm. condones slavery. Uh, but I think when we get into this question that you're asking, it becomes clear that, no, that, that's not exactly the case. And, and, and yeah, p- part of getting to that understanding is seeing that, um, yeah, l- like just to take in the New Testament times, um, 
slavery was was not race based. So it was it was all all different ethnicities were were masters or slaves. It wasn't that there was one ethnicity that were you know the masters and another ethnicity that were the slaves. It was you know it was part of how the economy worked, and there there could be up to uh, a third of the population would be in. in uh, serving as slaves uh, at any given time, um, so it was not based on racism. That's one key difference. It was also not uh, permanent, so it wasn't. You know, people were continually, uh, you know, moving into a, a role as a slave and and then being manumitted, being released um, from their uh, slavery. And so, you know, there were a lot of times an individual could sell themselves into slavery Mm -hmm. and that could actually be a way for upward mobility in in some cases if you Mm -hmm. had the right master that could be a way to actually improve your situation Um, and it also was not uh, it was not only uh, menial tasks that slaves did there there were all different kind of professions within uh, among those who served as slaves so you know some slaves were actually more well, you know, better educated than their masters. You know, they could be uh, a lawyer or a, a physician or, you know, a tutor uh, uh, teaching, you know, teaching the children, um, serving in a lot of different ways. Um, and, yeah, so it, it was it was limited in, in time as well. A slave was not a slave for life, but was uh, a slave for a certain period of time, maybe seven years or or more, but most of the time, by age thirty or in their thirties, individuals were, you know, had had gained their freedom. So they, they could kind of save up uh, some money that they were getting and could purchase their freedom. Um, uh, so yeah, a lot of key differences there, and and I think that does help to answer that question: why why did the biblical writers not, you know, why don't we see a, a strong argument against the institution of slavery? Part of it was because of those differences, and and I think another key piece of the answer is, you know, the 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 message of the Bible is about uh, is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you know, and social change definitely flows from that as individual lives are changed, and then we go out into the world and and, and impact culture in those ways, but the 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 primary message of the Bible is not about social change directly. You know, it's, it's, it's life change right. as, as people are uh, redeemed and, and, and sanctified. And then, and then uh, indirectly there's that change in culture. But the, the purpose of the Bible is not to, to speak um, directly to, to some of those social evils. Um, in, in the book, you... Uh, talk about the distinction between um, regulation and, and and commandment when it comes to uh, slavery and women and, and homosexuality. And I think you did a good job of making the distinction that slavery was never uh, commanded in the New Testament in particular. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of talk about why that's important to make the distinction between something, slavery that was not commanded but regulated, whereas the issues with women and homosexuality were commands and yeah. the difference there and why that's important. Yeah, yeah. For those who would read the Bible and say, "Well, it seems like the Bible's pro-slavery. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of commanding slavery in, in what it says." You you look at the passages carefully, and it's not 
uh, it, it's not, not actually upholding slavery as a you know God ordained institution. It's uh, it's it's addressing the world as it is, addressing individuals in the roles they find themselves in. You know, there's there's those commandments to slaves and also to masters. Um, so I don't I don't see there uh, an actual command. Uh, you know, for there to be slavery, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's addressing kind of the the heart issues for for individuals in in whichever those roles they find themselves in, um, and we find those in the in the household codes. You know, so there's commands to uh, husbands and wives, to parents and children, to slaves and masters. Um, but but yeah, we see we do see things in scripture that are kind of accommodations they're yeah. they're um uh you know polygamy is another mm-hmm. uh, example of that in the old testament we see the patriarchs they had mm-hmm. you know more than one wife and and you know so it, does that mean the bible teaches mm-hmm. polygamy that, yeah. that we sh- that that's something that ought to be done no not at all you know you, <laughs> yeah. we were just yeah. in sunday school that last sunday talk, uh, the lesson was on uh jacob and you know marrying rachel and leah mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's a mess, right. you know, <laughs> so, so the Bible just tells yeah. it like it is, it tells these stories. And yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everything about that is saying this, this is not desirable. Not this is right, a, this yeah. is a horrible to have more than one wife. Mm-hmm. That's not how like watch how bad it goes. And yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Divorce is another one, yeah. you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, basically because of the hardness of your heart, God, mm-hmm. God kind of right. allowed this in a sense, <clears throat> but that's, it's not, it's not God's plan. Right, right. right um, yeah. And so slavery I see in, in a similar category that it's, right. it's it's there. The Bible does talk about it, uh, addresses it in, in certain ways, but it's not, it doesn't amount to the Bible commending Commit, it or right. endorsing it. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, a key thing, uh, I think the real key difference there between what the Bible says about slavery and then what the Bible says about the roles of men and women is that consistently in the passages about men and women, it's rooted in creation. Right. Yes, yes. Whereas yes, in slavery, yes. it's, never it's never the case where it goes back to creation of like this is yeah. this is how God set it up. No, this yeah. is not how God set right. it up. Yeah. Yeah. But with with the roles of men and women, and uh, like in Romans one, addressing uh, homosexual behavior, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's allusions back to creation. Uh, yeah in that too, contrary to nature, right, you know, yeah. so mm-hmm. in the roles of men and women in, in terms of the Bible addressing homosexual activity, these, these are, it goes back to God's creation design, mm-hmm. whereas slavery was not part of God's creation design. Right. Yeah. 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 I thought that was very um, important about the, uh, going back to creation. Um, I think that's key because um, you assume, you can assume that when you see something in scripture, um, that God condones it just because it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to uh, understand the difference, like you said, between uh, creation, regulation, um, uh, descriptive and prescriptive and those types mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. You know? so, um, so, yeah, it was very important, I thought, the way you, you, the way you fleshed that out in the book, um, which, makes, which gives a whole different picture of, of, of slavery and... Um, um, as a regard, as the regards to race in particular, I think, because that's the only, the only, the only context of slavery that black people have in this country is race-based slavery. Mm-hmm. That's the only kind we've ever experienced, and so our minds will immediately go there. Yeah. Um, 
You kind of read it into the text. read it into the text because that's all we know. Right. So right. We, when we see uh, verses like uh, "slaves obey your masters," what's the first thing that comes to my mind? You know. So, um, but the, but again, that's usually out of ignorance and not reading um, more and studying more. So um, it's very important that you do, like you did in the book, um, flush it out and, and do greater study into those types of controversial hot topics, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. So thank you for doing that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's good. And. I would like to talk about how, sadly, from our own tribe, you know, in the history of Reformed theology, great Reformed theologians mm. didn't see this. Yeah. Like, that blows my mind. You mentioned yeah. Charles Hodge in the book, and mm-hmm. he's like, on Romans, he's one of the best. You yeah. Know, I love his commentary on Romans. And, I, and as I read it, I was reading, and I'm like, no, not, <laughs> yeah. you know? No, no. Like, <laughs> do you have any insight into, like, how there could be such a blind spot? Even Edwards, you know, right. Hodge, like, these guys, um, they just didn't see it. Whitfield, mm-hmm. you know, they owned slaves. And I would assume they could read the same text we could with maybe a lot more time on their hands to mm-hmm. parse the text out. And Yeah. Yeah, that is troubling, and I I don't I don't know what all to do with that. You know, I have the same same feeling of like, oh, these we have such respect for these guys. We can learn so much from them. They're they're such good exegetes, um, and understanding the the text in in so many ways. And yet, yeah, I mean, uh, what a glaring bl- blind spot. And I think that's that's how we just yeah, that's the right way to describe it. It's just a total blind spot there. Of um, you know, seeing, you know, you know, reading the text and reading it accurately in so many ways, but but just not seeing the the, the racism. So kind of having mm-hmm. this presupposition of racism that they mm-hmm. they just couldn't get get their minds out of that, um, you know, out of uh, seeing the world in that way. Um, so I think it's you know, some of the impact of that is. I mean, we shouldn't idolize any any man, you know, <laughs> any exegete, yeah. any pastor, theologian. You know, we, we need to take everything with a grain of salt and, and understand people. Everybody has their blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and to realize we, too, have our blind spots, and we need to pray that God will show those to us. Yeah. What what are we missing? What am I missing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to read in a discerning way, too, to... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these people, even though we can learn so much from them and we see so many, you know, insights that are right on, but to know that, well, they, they did, didn't get it all right, um, you know, uh, I mean, we, we can have, uh, you know, um, have charity for, for them as well. I mean, it doesn't mean we need to discount everything they wrote. Um, because they 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 got a you know got a, definitely a very significant thing wrong that they missed, but um, yeah, I'm curious to hear any more from yeah. you guys of how how you wrestle with that. What would you say to somebody who says, well, um, in regards to Edwards and Whitfield, they were just um, uh, products of their time, and you know, um, slavery was legal at the time, and it was just a cultural thing, and that they were just Responding uh, to, to the culture, the, the cultural norms of their day, mm-hmm. slavery was normal. So therefore, um, we kind of like kind of give them some grace and give them a pass because they were just mm-hmm. uh, products of their time. What would you say to somebody who gave that? Um, I don't want to say excuse, but that kind of a- answer to why they may have owned slaves um, 
uh, in spite of what the Bible has says says about it. Yeah, yeah, that that's tough. I mean, I, I can see I can see the reasoning there, and and can have some empathy for it. it was just it was practiced by mm-hmm. you know it was so prevalent and uh, it, it would it would really be a, a hard turn to mm-hmm. take a stand against that and yet I, I don't think we can give them a complete pass on right. it either I mean <laughs> there, there's a responsibility there to um, you know to see things in, in the Bible mm-hmm. to to be sensitive to the, the spirits leading and you know I yeah, wish there would have been something there that yeah, pricked yeah. their conscience about about right. what they were a part of. Right, because there were others on Wesley who was you know during the slavery period who did not um, endorse slavery. He thought it was mm-hmm. sin, and then I think even Spurgeon um, uh, spoke out against uh, slavery mm-hmm. too. So um, yeah, there were other theologians as well who lived during that same time period who did not. You know, so I don't, I don't think you could give um, them a pass for that either. But what about these others who? Right. You know, so yeah, um, yeah. Let me ask you a question, Eddie. Um, for us who are, you know, leading churches, and being that this is such a contentious um, thing within Christianity, um, for those who do love a, uh, an Edwards or a Whitfield, they see them as heroes. Mm-hmm. Like, how can, how can? men and women think about them with the race issue, but also with the African-American culture in mind who mm-hmm. see those guys not as heroes, mm-hmm. but as like the enemy, as mm-hmm. part of the problem, part of the oppressors, you know, like how do you, how can we create a third way between, okay, they were part of the oppression mm-hmm. um, and then you got this other side over here, they're the heroes mm-hmm. of our faith, you know, our forefathers. Mm-hmm. Like what's the, what's the third way? What's the middle ground? <sighs> Well, I think understanding that all of our heroes have clay feet, whoever they may be, um, whether theological heroes, sports heroes, um, Martin Luther King, whomever they may be, have clay feet. And eventually they, those feet get exposed. Um, so I think understanding that um, helps. Um, and just understanding that people are not perfect and they will get even important issues wrong. Uh, you can be... Orthodox over here and unorthodox over here. Mm. You know, does that mean um, that God is not using me or can't use me? No, um, but it does mean that I'm falling short. Um, Carl Ellis says there's two sides to, to a uh, theological coin. There's the ethical side, um, um, how we should obey God, and the epistemological side, what I know about God. And so... Um, And to have a complete theology, you have to have both of those. What you know about God and understand about God as well as how you obey God. Both of those make a complete theology. And sometimes our theology is not complete. We can be orthodox on the epistemological side. I know all of this about God and, you know, and and can teach about the nature of God and the attributes of God. But when it comes to social issues, totally miss it. And I think that's what happened, um, at least with Edwards and with when it came to slavery. Um, and with Martin Luther King, it could have been reverse. You know, maybe his theology wasn't um, orthodox, but at least he had some social, when it came to social issues, his theology was on point. And so, um, and, and you can't uh, uh, criticize one and hold up the other without being in some, in some ways hypocritical. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. understand what I'm saying? So, um, and so I think we have to understand that um, we get things wrong, 
And I can I can I can listen to an Edwards or a Woodfield and and um, glean the great theology that they have on one hand and still reject their, this theology about slavery and still reject the fact that they own slaves and understand that and, and know that that's wrong. Um, doesn't mean that I can't learn anything from him. Now, some, some may say, well, I don't even want to hear anything he has to say, and I would understand that. You know, I've heard a black pastor say that my people don't even know anything about Jonathan Edwards. He doesn't even talk about Jonathan Edwards to them because, because of that issue. Now, you know, you can disagree with that, but I understand the logic behind that. You know, because um, there's other great theologians out there that I that I can point them to, um, and some may go to one extreme and say I'm going to reject him, period, and others say, okay, all right, I get that, but there's still some good over here as well. And you can do that with Edwards, Martin Luther King, or anybody else up today. And we even see, you know, some of that going on with now with the whole social justice issue. We see that, you know. So I, I think that's always going to be the case with when it comes to theology, and when you're dealing with theology from a ethnic perspective, if you will, for, from a racial perspective, you're going to have some contention. So that's what I would say mm-hmm. concerning that. Yeah. What do you think the best way to navigate um, for unity's sake um, when people are on other sides? You know, like you have the guy who thinks Edwards is a hero and then you have the pastor who's like, mm-hmm. we're not touching him. He's, mm-hmm. you know, how do you navigate through that? Yeah, like if you're trying to bring unity, like um, I'm hesitant to quote Edwards because of our, you know, because of our congregations makeup mm-hmm. and because I don't want to unknowingly endorse somebody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it. and I hate to say it like this, but it might be different if you quoted him. Oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think teaching about um, him and others Teach the history, teach um, who they were, uh, teach the good, the bad, and the ugly about all of our theological heroes. Um, and let people decide on, on their own whether they want to uh, learn from them or not, you know. And, and even help them to understand, if I'm quoting a Woodfield or Edwards, that doesn't mean that I'm endorsing what they said about slavery. Um, and I think you can do that and teach that and and have people understand that, okay, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, okay, that was good. Um, doesn't mean that you're, um, you know, endorsing what, where he stood when it comes to slavery. So I think teaching about the history of the individual and the topic of slavery, I think that definitely would help. And then, you know, what people want to decide on their own whether they want to continue to hear from him, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Um, Anything else you want to add before we move on to complementarianism or anything else you want to bring up? Not that I can think of right hand. Right okay. Now, but, uh, yeah. All right. All right. Um, so we are like pretty hardline complementarians in the room here. And uh, that is also a really offensive theology today, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, as you wrote your book here to, to kind of defend, like, hey, we don't need to go beyond what the scripture says, but we do have to be careful in how we maybe apply the complementarian issue. Um, how do you reconcile the difference between men being the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church in Ephesians 5, and then you got in second, um, or I'm sorry, First Timothy two eleven and twelve. You got the women should remain silent in the church, and mm-hmm. then you got the the elder qualifications right on the heels of that. Um, how do we have women 
feel and like really feel their dignity, worth, equality, value, imago Dei, but at the same time say God designed men to be the head or the leaders in the home and in the church. Mm-hmm. Like how do we how do we create that? You are valued. You are you know it's not a competence issue even. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you approach that? You've thought deeply about this. Um. Yeah, I have, but I haven't got it all figured out yet. Okay. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, those are great questions, and, and that's what I think every pastor and church needs to be thinking through and and trying to be intentional about that, and and you know teaching through those passages and um, and teaching that the 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 role of a husband leading in his marriage and in his family is is not about him. You know, not about you know being selfish or anything like that, but it's it's about his responsibility to to serve, to be a sacrificial leader, to lead and provide and protect. And <clears throat> I think as men live that out, you know, the the women in their lives are going to appreciate that and and feel loved and cared for and protected, and and they're going to flourish uh, in that kind of environment in the home. So it starts in the home. And then, you know, by God's grace, as that's uh, being lived out in the home, you know, and, and women can can flourish in whatever area of ministry God has gifted them and called them to. And then coming into the church, uh, you know, by God's grace, that can that can uh, contribute to a, a, a thriving um, uh, church life where women are mentoring other women and leading women's Bible studies and teaching children's Sunday school classes and doing all kinds of mercy ministries and serving in all these ways. And, you know, really the, you know, there, there's an, you know, unending, uh, number of ways that women can, uh, can and should serve in the life of the church and in, in the world. And, you know, so we want to encourage that. I mean, I, I think of our church here and, um, I mean, the women are very active and are, are serving in, in so many ways and, and so many women who n- love and know the Bible so well and can teach on a very deep level. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, you know, the kinds of things we see in Titus 2 and, you know, women should be discipling other women. And um, um, so, yeah, I think we, you know, we need to call for men to to lead sacrificially in those ways and then, uh, you know, encourage women to, uh, to serve in, in whatever ways they see God calling them. So this isn't about saying, oh, women can't be involved in ministry. Mm-hmm. That's not at all the, the case. And sometimes egalitarians will caricature it in that way, but mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. So my, my daughter uh, is seven. And she, like a lot of kids, you know, wants, wants to be like dad. And so one day I remember her being like, dad, one day I want to be a pastor. Okay. You know? And yeah. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, uh, well, babe, you, you can't be a pastor. Like, and, and so I had to explain gently that that's for men, but in, in a simple way, like, how would you explain that? How would you explain that to a child or to somebody who's brand new to the faith and, and they came into your worship gathering here and you were teaching on, you know, first Timothy chapter two, 11 and 12, that first time they were in the worship <laughs> gathering and yeah. they want to meet you afterward. How are you going to coach them? What would you say? Yeah, I think I'd go back to how God created, uh, mankind and that we are created in his image men and women are created in God's image and 
there's an equality there. There's a, a sanctity to all of human life, and um, and in God's creativity and in His goodness and for our good and for His glory, He He chose to create us in in particular ways. I mean, He's made every one of us different. You know, He's He's made every one of us unique with different gifts and. You know, we, we look different and we have different personalities and this is all part of the wonder of his creation. And one of the things he's done with, with gender is that he created, you know, very intentionally created male and female. And he created uh, men and women to, to function in different ways. And, you know, again, this is part of his amazing creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and he created uh, families, you know, he created marriage and... Um, uh, and part of his design is uh, is for uh, for a husband to to be a leader in the home and to take a, a specific responsibility for caring for his wife and his uh, children and, and providing um, and uh, and for a wife you know the the particular blessings for um, a wife in terms of um, being able to. Uh, you know, bear children, you know, men, men can't do that. There, there's obviously differences here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's part of God's uh, good plan. Um, and for women to, you know, have a, have a, uh, particular gift in being able to, to nurture, uh, young children. And, um, and so there's a, we, we complement each other and it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Right. Um, it, it just means that we're really good together as a team, you know, and, and, and yeah, so just trying to emphasize and, and, and knowing that, yeah, this, this can sound like a very foreign concept and, and even an, an offensive kind of thing, um, depending on where people are coming from, but trying to portray it as, um, yeah, God did this as part of his creative design and it's, you know, to highlight his, his greatness um, and it's it's for our good. It's for our flourishing. When we embrace these roles, it can really bring a lot of joy and, and happiness and, and a lot of good to to others. I think going to Ephesians five and talking about how you know this is part of God's design that it's a picture of Christ in the church. So this mm-hmm. is really a story of the gospel as it's lived out in in a, a healthy God centered marriage where a husband is really laying down his life, um, you know, by, by giving up his rights, by sacrificing his, uh, maybe selfish desires. He's laying that all down to serve his wife and family. Um, that's a picture of Christ laying down his life for the church. Um, and then the church, you know, gladly responding, uh, to that and, and respecting that leadership, you know, that's, that's a picture of, of how the church ought to, uh, relate to Christ. I think those are some of the things I'd say. That's good. It's real good. Um, 21 of Ephesians 5 says, submit to one another. Mm-hmm. And then it goes right into wives, submit to your husbands in 22. Uh, and and the, what you just described there is kind of a mutual submission because the husband's giving up himself mm-hmm. for his wife's, if you will, needs, desires. Um, and so he's submitting to her desires, like her, her needs uh, to, to sacrifice himself, his selfishness, maybe his love for, you know, overindulgence and in, in his hobbies or whatever. And he's mm-hmm. dying to that to further serve her. But he ultimately takes the lead and takes responsibility, 
right? Is that how you would characterize being the head? How would you define headship in a marriage? Yeah, I think I think it's tied to uh, authority and uh, and responsibility, and uh, you know I think in our culture, you know, authority that's uh, you know gets a bad rap, you know, and, and there's a lot of pushback to authority, um, but I, I do think biblically that's part of of what that refers to the the headship is a uh, is an authority, um, but it's uh, yeah like you said it's a selfless um, kind of thing, not a, oh, I have the authority, so you better do what I want. Mm-hmm. And no, biblically, it's actually the opposite. You know, I, I have a, a humble uh, authority here that, you know, uh, an authority that needs to be exercised in a humble way. It's not not for my preferences, but it's, it's, it's something I need to steward for the good of those under my care. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm reminded of what Jesus said about, you know, he says, learn from me for I am meek and lowly, Yeah, you know. And if he's the head, that's the way he led. He led with a meekness and a humility and a lowliness. But yet said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah, yeah, and He right. gets to call the shots, not in a, you know, in a dictator way, but in a loving, like, <laughs> husband kind of way. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, in that passage in Ephesians 5, you know, it's it, the few verses to wives is what can be most offensive to people. But you look at the passage as a whole, and, you know, there, there, there is some important things said to wives there, but then it's a longer section to the husbands, and, and you see mm-hmm. kind of a there's, a, there's a weight to the responsibility placed on husbands there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our culture is... is trying to redefine marriage and and which we know they cannot do by the way <laughs> I mean they can't redefine marriage any, any more than they can redefine what a chicken is but um, but they're mm-hmm. trying to do that so what would you say to somebody who says um, I hear what you're saying but the main issue is that we love each other the two people love each other um, whether that's a man and a woman or whether it's two men and or two women and so um and uh, so that's what really what's important in a marriage and can uh, the Bible talks about marriage being a representation of Christ in the church and can two men or two women uh, portray and represent Christ in the church and why why not yeah I would go to um, Ephesians 5 go to um, Romans 1 and, and just you know I think it's pretty straightforward there mm-hmm. um, if, if we read the, the text and, um, and and see the the instructions there and, and again going back to those God's creation order you know God's design in creation um, you know we, we we can't get past that I mean right, it's right, it's, yeah, yeah. it's pretty plain there and um, even and they it, genuinely love each other yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there what we're seeing is, you know, an emotional, um, you know, desire for uh, a homosexual relationship or, or an, that emotional desire to be able to support that, mm-hmm. that really, uh, really impacts how people try to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And okay. so okay. Um, I, I'm not sure what level you're, you're thinking of, just the culture at large or... Uh, 
people who would say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I want to support I would say this. both and. Yeah. Both, yeah. yeah the yeah, culture I mean, at large and even within the church, which we do see some of that even within the church. Yeah. People professing to be Bible-believing Christians and still, mm-hmm. you know, uh, try to live the way they, they, they like to, all in the name of love. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, in my study uh, and, and uh, work in this dissertation, this book, um, dealt a lot with hermeneutics and how, mm-hmm. do we, mm-hmm. how do we interpret the Bible? How do we understand the Bible? How do we apply the Bible? And so when we get to questions like that, that's where we see, and, and that really concerns me to see yeah. people that say, oh, I, I love Jesus, I love mm-hmm. the Bible, I you know, would even wear the label of evangelical, mm-hmm. but say, well, I, I endorse gay marriage mm-hmm. and, right. um, and would use just the kind of reasoning you're describing here. Yeah. Well, h- how can we say that two people who love each other can't be together? Right. Yeah. And, um, but that's where we're seeing uh, you know, really abandoning the authority of Scripture and the mm-hmm. clarity of Scripture mm-hmm. because then you have to do these hermeneutical gymnastics, gymnastics really to right. get around yeah. those passages yeah. and, and reinterpret things and say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says or that was just cultural. Mm-hmm. Paul wasn't thinking of, you know, kind right. of lifelong committed mm-hmm. homosexual relationships you know, so you know they can go in different different directions. But you read those passages and you see, well, Genesis, God created male and female. He created marriage to be between one man and one woman. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is the creation design. And Romans one is very clear that that homosexual acts are contrary to nature. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, in your Research and writing, you have a massive amount of citations in here. Do you remember how many? <laughs> no, I don't. You have a lot. Like I was, I, I was amazed I was that earlier. At how many like, citations wow. you have in here? That's what they make you do in a dissertation. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess yeah, so. I guess Try so. to cover all the yeah, there's know, a lot things that have been written on a lot things, but um, in your in your read, so you read a lot. How many books do you think you read to create this book? Well, a lot of things I didn't read the entire book. You okay, know, so you I read the found an essay here, chapters. found chapters here okay. that mm-hmm. that applied, and um, and and you know read a lot of commentaries on the specific passages. Sure. So there were a lot of commentaries I consulted that obviously I didn't read the whole commentary, but but I you know I, I enjoyed the exegesis of really studying through each of these passages, um, and then thinking about you know the the hermeneutics of it of how how do we. You know, how do we look at the Bible? And, and it was obviously written in a cultural context, and then and we're in a different cultural context. So what, what applies and what doesn't directly? And um, it's good things to wrestle through. Yeah, no doubt. Um, for those who wouldn't be Bible scholars, what is hermeneutics? It's just the, you know, trying to be um, mindful of the, the lenses through which we look at the Bible, you mm-hmm. know, so... And, and, and the principles by which we should um, interpret the Bible. You know, so we, um, you know, we read these passages like in 1 Corinthians 11, talks about head coverings, about women wearing head coverings um, into, uh, you know, the, the worship service. And so what, what do we do with that? What do I do with that um, today? You know, what do we do with that in our church today? And so, you know, hermeneutics would be, you know, what are the principles by which we, you know, we uh, understand and uh, apply passages in Scripture? 
Okay, so could you do it to the head coverings passage real quick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, the passage there, it's, uh, you know, that, that gets a lot of discussion because, um, you know, there are, there are traditions that, that continue to apply that. Mm-hmm. There are some churches you would go to and the women would have head, head coverings on mm-hmm. because they see that as well. The Bible clearly instructs that, and so we should continue to apply it. Um, I, I see that, you know, fairly clearly as a cultural practice that was that was uh, practiced then. That was part of, um, you know, just the, uh, the the femininity of of women, and that um, it, it was part of their uh, uh, dressing as a, a woman. And so I, uh, but then you have you have uh, you'd have egalitarians who would say, well. Well, yeah, that the head covering thing is cultural. Therefore, basically everything in that passage mm-hmm. is is cultural to mm-hmm. the first century, and none of it applies. Um, so, just to read a couple of the verses here in First Corinthians eleven, the Apostle Paul writes, um, "I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God." Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife will not cover her head, um, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Um, and, and it, it goes on. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I see, you know, and, and one of the principles of hermeneutics, one of the principles of interpreting Scripture is that uh, Scripture itself interprets Scripture. You know, so we, you know, we can get into a passage and, and wonder, what, what do we do with this? You know, we'll keep reading the Bible, you know, right. and, and keep trying to piece piece things together. So that that is so helpful to be able to, you know, have Genesis and the things we see there and to have Ephesians 5 about um, husbands and wives, to have 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and and to have 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 and to try to piece all of these things together. What what is what is being said here? Scripture is not going to contradict itself, but it's going to help us um, understand what it means. So, so in this passage, I see the, the, the actual, you know, wearing of a head covering um, as something that, that was practiced there, and it had a particular meaning in that culture. In the Corinth culture. Yeah, yeah, in the Corinth culture. Um, for today, it's, it's not, um, doesn't have that same significance. Um, you know, uh, a, a woman wearing a head covering or not wearing a head covering, that's not going to mean the same thing as it did in, right. in Just Corinth. like cutting your hair short as a woman is yeah. not necessarily disgraceful, mm-hmm. as the text says. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think, I mean, one one point of application is, um, you know, that there are, there are things in our culture that, that indicate femininity or masculinity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there should be... Uh, that should be something we're mindful of. That, right, that right, men right. should should dress as men. You know, women should dress as women. Um, honoring God's design in that as as male and female, um, and uh, and then the clear statements here about about headship. 
you know, so going back to what we talked about in Ephesians 5, that, that um, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Um, just because this passage discusses uh, head coverings, and, and that's not directly applicable now as it was then. That doesn't mean we throw everything else out in the passage. <laughs> right, I mean, right. Those are some, those are some pretty uh, significant theological statements there that, that are worth uh, thinking through. And, and since we're on it, I mean, another point here that's really interesting is to see that the head of Christ is God. Right. Mm-hmm. So even in the mm-hmm. Trinity, mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a headship there mm-hmm. where God the Father is head over Christ, mm-hmm. Our understanding of the Trinity, we know mm-hmm. the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are are equal in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, but we even see there there's different roles mm-hmm. that the three persons right. of the Trinity play, and there's even an, a headship within the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So what that shows us in terms of the relationship of men and women and the roles of men and women, equality and difference in roles can exist in the same relationship. Mm-hmm. That's good. And a lot of times yeah, yeah, egalitarians yeah. will try to pit those against each other. That if, if you say there's differences in role, then we can't be equal. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's not true because in the Trinity, yeah. there are differences in role mm-hmm. and there is equality. Yeah. And God is the ultimate reality. Yeah. yeah. You know, like right. it, reality is defined by God. So if there could be that in God, there certainly can be that in what he has created. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, another passage is coming to mind in Timothy where not with braided hair, he talks about, you mm-hmm. know, women not braiding hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, that certainly is a cultural reference to ladies mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, that was something being done in Ephesus where Timothy was uh, was the pastor at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you comment on that hermeneutically, how you would interpret that culturally versus, um, you know, the headship and the authority passages? Uh, yeah. Or even the elder passage in in First uh, Timothy three, right, right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let me get to it here in First Timothy two. Um, he's uh, says First uh, Timothy two eight. I desire that in every place uh, the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works um, so yeah there there's a uh, uh, again some some particular cultural manifestations of these things that, that would have uh, Communicated a certain thing in that culture that's different in our culture, um, and uh, you know the 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 point being uh, modesty and not being you know ostentatious, not being extravagant in in the way you dress, um, but yeah, modest and, and humble in those ways. Um, it, it doesn't you know so so we we don't need to you know condemn braided hair today because right. that's not. You know, communicating the same thing as it was then. Yeah, and then in three, you have some clear references there to husband of one wife for a pastor, and he, 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 over and over, mm-hmm. um, right on. You know, just coming, uh, 
behind, I do not permit a woman to speak or exercise authority over a man. Yeah. In 2, 11, and 12. Could you speak to that, being that you have studied this? Um, what, what exactly do you think Paul is forbidding women? You know, surely he's not saying when we come into a worship gathering, women should not speak one word mm-hmm. and they must remain silent the whole time or maybe write things on a card and hold it up and yeah, right. say something. Right. Like what, how would you practically flush that out? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think the context, you know, it, it helps us to understand uh, what's going on here. And, you know, another just simple but key principle of interpreting the Bible. You know, read the context, read read what's what's going on here, and so uh, that's what's so helpful about First Timothy two, and then followed by First Timothy three. You know, some people will pull out of context First mm-hmm. Timothy two and, and find it so offensive, um, but they haven't worked to kind of understand mm-hmm. what's going on around this. So, yeah, Paul does say in First Timothy two twelve, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then comes the, the, the basis in original creation for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Um, so going back to creation, seeing the order of creation, that, that meant something, that God created Adam first and then created Eve uh, from the man, for the man, brought her to the man. Um, those are, are significant pieces of the creation narrative. Um, that, that Paul picks up on here. But yeah, in terms of that um, statement that she is to remain quiet, I, I think uh, what that simply means is um, she is not to speak in, in the sense of teaching or exercising authority over a man. You know, so even, even in that verse, I think it's, it's clarified what that means. And then with the qualifications for uh, overseers, elders coming right you know, shortly after this in chapter three, um, you know, I think uh, e- effectively what what he's getting at here is that that women are not to serve as in that role in the church as overseers. Um, you know, to the two things that differentiate uh, overseers from deacons are the 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 teaching role and the exercising authority role, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, th- those are the two things Paul says he does not uh, permit a-, a woman to do. And so, 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 yeah, again, trying to empathize with those who, who would feel offended by this by saying, well, you know, a woman should be able to do everything a man can do. And she's just as competent, if not more so, you know, so w- why, why this? And, um, but yeah, again, going back to that explanation of God in his, infinite goodness and creativity and he knows better than we do um, he he made us in this way and it doesn't at all mean that that men are are better or smarter or or anything like that but uh, God designed it in this way um, for for men um, and, and you know seeing the parallels between the home and the church um, you know uh, part of the qualifications for an overseer is that he needs to uh, know how to manage his own household well. Uh, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know, so so uh, a man in his home, as as husband and father, needs to have that shepherding role that's very sacrificial. It's a sacrificial kind of leadership that translates into the church as well, where there needs to be you know humble servant uh, men who are. Uh, leading 
in, in that role. Yeah, not this dominant kind of, I'm the leader, listen to me, I call the shots, yeah. get under me. You know. right. And certainly there have been men who have abused their, you know, yeah. their authority yeah. that way. And there's, you know, Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason that, that, that there is kickback because of some of the abuse that has taken place over the years, in, in the church even in particular, but mm-hmm. um, that white people might reject that. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that's where another... Uh, key thing here with elders comes in that there ought to be a plurality of elders right, right. you know so God set it up that way too gave us instructions yeah, there should right, be yeah. elders plural in each right, church right. and so there needs to be that kind of accountability where it's not just one guy who has yeah. you know all the authority and there's no checks yeah. or balances yeah. no no yeah. people kind of who know what's going on in his life that there right. needs to be that that shared leadership yeah, yeah. to keep things in check right that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> whole other podcast, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, how how much of an influence do you think the culture has had on the church pertaining to these issues? Um, and and do you, yeah how much of how much of an influence has the culture had? And when do you think it really began to take notice in the church about the influence on all three of these topics? Mm. Um, how much influence has the culture had? Well, obviously a lot. And uh, I don't know if I know enough to trace it back and okay. say here's okay. kind of where, where it started. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think a caution for us is, um, you know, when we find ourselves trying to kind of reinterpret certain texts in order to get in line with the way the culture is going. Mm-hmm. That should be a serious red flag. Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. that's something my my advisor and, and my friend Tom Schreiner at Southern Seminary, he's mm-hmm. he's pointed out, you know, with William Webb and this redemptive movement hermeneutic, you know, when you find yourself kind of falling in yeah. line with yeah. this is the way the culture is going, mm-hmm. and so we need to get on board with that and we need to kind of you know, so, so if you're kind of starting with that agenda, and then you're trying to figure out how to fit the Bible into that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not yeah, the that's, way it needs to happen. Right, yeah, and that's what you see happening. Yeah, in the culture yeah. today. Yeah. yeah, and so that's where, you know, comparing the the uh, the hermeneutics of egalitarianism, and you know, some of the principles by which they're reinterpreting some of those texts, and then seeing the way that those who are wanting to endorse uh, so-called gay marriage, uh, you, you see the similarities in mm-hmm. how they're uh, how they're interpreting the Bible. So that, that you, you see the the similar hermeneutics there, and um, it's not necessarily a slippery slope. I mean, uh, you know, it's not to say that every every person who uh, embraces an egalitarian view of the roles of men and women is 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 going to eventually right, yeah. endorse okay. gay marriage, but you know, it's it's good for us to bring that up and say yeah, there, there's there's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a similarity. Yeah, there's yeah, a there's a correlation. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, I think it's just a reminder we, we need to read these texts as they are, understand them, um, be, be sensitive in how we communicate it, and um, uh, but but to see that I mean this is the consistent biblical. Um, portrayal of, of manhood and womanhood that, that helps us understand the roles of men and women and uh, keeps us from from slipping into that, you know, what the culture is is 
you know, pushing us more and more toward yeah. of endorsing same-sex marriage. Did you get, when you wrote the book, or even when we're in the process of writing the book, did you get any, like, pushback or people saying, ah, oh, you might not want to do that, might not want to touch those subjects or that subject in a book, um, mm. I wouldn't do that if I were you, <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Did you get any of that? Well, I mean, the, the school I was at was very, you know, supportive of complementarian viewpoint okay. and... and um, but uh, but yeah, I mean there were that was obviously in my mind, knowing that yeah, this is a hot topic, and obviously there's there's people who are really not they're not going to like what I'm going to say about this, and right, yeah. um, you know I was able to interact with some of the scholars who I interacted with in the book. I was able to interact personally with some of them, and you know most of that was was pretty cordial and things. But um, but I have you know I've preached sermons here. I've preached yeah, yeah, on Romans yeah. one and. Okay. You know, I've had had uh, pushback. You know, just uh, kind of online. You know, people find okay. find these things. And okay. Yeah. Then we'll kind of. Yes. Yeah. I was curious about that too. Like, yeah. Even online. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Comments or whatever from because uh, your book is on Amazon, and mm-hmm. so yeah, you can get reviews and those kind of things and comments. So I was just interested in mm-hmm. what kind of response you may have gotten. Yeah, yeah, some of that. Not not a whole lot. Okay, well, that's good. That's yeah, that's good. good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. What was the most surprising thing that in your studies and your writing? What like main things stuck out to you? Where you're like, oh wow, you know, one one thing that maybe stood out above all the other things that you learned or grew from or hmm. gained. Um. Well, I, I mean, I guess one of the key points there that just kept getting was driven home as I continued to study was just seeing very clearly that difference between the the roles of men and women being rooted in creation mm-hmm. versus slavery not not being the case in that and and I was so fascinated about the slavery issue in the Bible and um, yeah maybe one thing <laughs> that still sticks out to me is that it's it's still somewhat an unresolved issue, you know, for, for me. I mean, it's, I still yeah. wrestle with it. I yeah. still look at some of those passages in the Old Testament about slavery and just think, well, what is going on here? And, yeah. you know, so, I mean, that that's a humbling thing, and, and it's, uh, I guess, just a way to trust God. That I, you know, I know his word is... Um, is, is in, entirely truthful right. and good and 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 yet there's still things that I even after studying quite a bit you know don't understand and um, you know things that when we're in heaven we'll understand yeah. better but yeah. Um, yeah that's an interesting when, question I, I'll have to keep thinking about that yeah, 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 yeah. Um, when it, when it comes to the topic of slavery um, did you feel um, maybe hesitant as a white man to try to um, get a grasp on this and then teach it to even uh, to black people at all, to even talk about this to, uh, to black members of your congregation or just even in general, um, and a fear of how they would respond to this white man trying to tell me about slavery. Mm. Is any of that um, sure, come yeah. across your mind? Yeah, and, and if so... Um, or even have you gotten any of that from black people who may have looked at you kind of sideways as if to say, you know, what, what are you trying to tell me? Or, you mm-hmm. know, how dare you try to teach me about this? Mm-hmm. Was that, 
Did you get any of that at all, or did you feel that way at all? Well, I definitely, yeah, definitely on my mind. Of, um, I, and I, I think what that has just prompted me to do over over these years is just to want to want to have conversations like this, right. you know, where I can learn from others, where mm-hmm. I can have friendships with. Uh, with others who can enlighten me on these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about before about blind spots and some mm-hmm. of our theological heroes, and they obviously had blind spots and, mm-hmm. and which reminds me, I have blind spots and I don't know what they are because if I knew what they were, right, they wouldn't right. be blind spots. <laughs> right. But yeah. what I can do is try to hang out with people uh, who are, who are different than me and who can share their experiences and, and what they're seeing in life. And, um, and hopefully that will, you know, shed light on, on my blind spots. And so, um, you know, things like this past fall, Jarvis Williams being here right. and being able to just hear from him and, and hang out with him and, you know, friendships, you know, like with you, Eddie, and, uh, and, and others where I can just ask questions of like, what, what, what are those situations like for you? And, and knowing that, yeah, there are some real differences and things that I don't, I don't think about when I am, am out walking around. Uh, but um, others, others are, and um, so um, I guess I'm kind of rambling. But but no, yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, yeah. You're. I think that's a, a good question, and I, I guess part in the book, you know, I think you know a, a lot of what I was doing is kind of looking historically, even going back to the first century mm. and, and, and with the focus on hermeneutics, I, I guess I saw my role as, you know, not that I'm coming across as I have, I kind of understand mm-hmm. all of what's happened in American history or anything, mm-hmm. but just trying to look at some specific things here and, and mm-hmm. read some people and, and make observations about, about hermeneutics. And mm-hmm. yeah, and it was fascinating to think about in, you know, uh, around the time of the civil war in America and leading up to that time and the different, you know, the different interpretations mm-hmm. of passages of, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, abolitionists and, and pro slavery and, and what that was like mm-hmm. with Bible interpreters, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the mm-hmm. debates that were happening there. That, that was a fascinating piece of the study. Yeah, talk a little bit about the abolitionists that you learned about in this, in this, what was their motivation? Um, for wanting to abolish slavery, um, obviously it was their, their interpretation of scripture. Um, but can you talk about some abolitionists in particular that maybe caught your eye or caught your attention that maybe stood out, if any, at all? Well, I, I can more speak to you know passages that they went to. Okay, yes, and That'd be good. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think. Um, you know, you mentioned Philemon, and and Philemon is not, you know, again, it's not a a full on attack on slavery, mm-hmm. but there's definitely things in there where Paul is yeah. is given some pretty heavy hints yeah, of like, yeah. you know, you should, uh, you, you know, you should release this slave, um, this bond servant. Um, I have the passage here: no longer as a bond servant, but mm-hmm. more than a bond servant, as yeah. a beloved brother. Right. Yeah. You know, and so he, he's really, really mm-hmm. hinting strongly here um, against, uh, you know, against, uh, you know, him continuing to serve as a slave. First um, Corinthians seven twenty one is another verse mm-hmm. that 
Um, Paul says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So another hint there of, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, this isn't an attack on the institution of slavery. We wish we had that in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But there are verses like this that that say, yeah, if you can gain your freedom, Mm -hmm. go for it. Um, Also in 1 Timothy 1, there's a vice list there Mm -hmm. mentioning... um, you know, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexual homosexuality, enslavers, mm-hmm. liars, perjurers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, enslavers is listed there in, in that vice list. And then we have these passages, uh, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, mm-hmm. there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. Um, and even in those passages addressing slaves and masters, the, the, the instructions to masters, you know, very much put the, the slave and master on the mm-hmm. same yeah. level. Right. Yeah. Uh, masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven mm-hmm. and that there's no partiality with mm-hmm. him. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't have as much as we might want to right. wish we had in, in the Bible about that, but, but these... You know these commandments, if obeyed, really do revolutionize mm-hmm. um, okay. those things. So yeah, I think the abolitionists, um, a lot of them, you know, uh, had some very had some good biblical arguments against mm-hmm. slavery in these types of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, unfortunately, you know, there were other exegetes, other theologians who who came against them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and going back to the that blind spot, and you know mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't see the the racism that was just part of their mm-hmm. part of their thinking, but they, you know, uh, you know, kind of um, tore apart some of those arguments, mm-hmm. and so then then abolitionists kind of moved to other uh, other tactics of of that that actually um, you know ha- had to kind of take take other. Uh, other ways around that to try to um, push for the abolitionist uh, position, and that's where they, you know, went to more of the the moral principles uh, of things, and and so I think the you know hermeneutically it became less uh, persuasive, but it's kind of where they needed to go in terms of yeah. persuading, trying to persuade the culture against slavery. Okay. Mark Knoll wrote, you know, he's a good historian and wrote some some yeah. good things, just kind of comparing the the, the different interpretations that, that scholars had during that time. It's okay. good. That's real good. Um, ben, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, thanks this for being, a, you know, a voice to this issue. It's important to a lot of people, and I think even now more so than, than when you first read it it's mm-hmm. or wrote it it's important um, uh, any last thoughts Eddie before we close up here no no I just appreciate uh, the book um, very very insightful I would highly recommend it so I appreciate that and I remember reading an article you wrote on for the Gospel Coalition a couple of years back mm-hmm. on slavery too which um, which was very good and if you can look that up and get that it would be very insightful too so yeah I appreciate that you have to get Ben's book yes. go buy it it's cheaper on Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys and what you're doing and uh, appreciated this opportunity to sit down and talk about these things with you today. Yeah. yeah.